listeners. I am talking to Jeff Katz, a former writer of WCW. Uh, he was also a associate producer of multiple films, uh, executive producer of multiple films. He's also a filmmaker. He's a comic book artist, not, I mean, comic writer, uh, a lot of other stuff. So I, I feel like in terms of my interview, I, I had to start from the basis. How did you, I mean, not from a long standpoint, because I kind of figure how you got into um, work with a new line, because around the time, like around the time, especially going into the new millennium, WCW was brought by um, Time Warner Cable and Time Warner Cable was actually one of the, the subsidiaries of New Line Cinema because, and I figured that's how you got into new, working for New Line Cinema. But that's how, not accurate. That's actually untrue if you want me to clear oh, that up. How dare accurate. you? How dare you start this off incorrectly, damn it. <laughs> uh, no, so in actuality, uh, New Line was already under the Turner umbrella, and at that point was already Time Warner. Um, oh, okay. Because Bob and Ted Turner had done business going way back uh, before, before ultimately New Line initially was brought into Time Warner under the Turner banner, but was all Time Warner pretty quickly. And so in my case, I had started writing Bob Shea at New Line when I was like eight years old. Uh, I met Bob's father randomly at a, at a dinner party my parents were at in suburban Detroit, uh, kind of charmed him, made a bet with him because yeah, where I grew up, like there's, I'm, I'm from a little tiny town in suburban Detroit. And like my next door neighbors, uh, when I was a little kid were the Ramey family. So Sam and, and, and Ted and I, that their whole family. And then <laughs> Bob Shea's dad lived in another part of the town. Like, it's really weird. And, and Detroit, if you look at genre movies, Roger Corman, Bruckheimer, like there's a really weird something in those trees. Yeah. Um, but but I um, I made a bet with Bob's dad, Max, uh, about Freddy's Nightmares TV series, won the bet. And as a result, he had to send my letter to Bob and get me autographed Nightmare on Elm Street posters. Uh, oh, nice. And so I won the bet and then Bob and I started corresponding. And when I was like eight, eight or nine years old, he said, someday, son, you, I hope to be able to hire you and you can come and make a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, da 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 little knowing that I would uh, take him quite seriously and, and uh, do it. So no. I, I actually, I had, while I was working at WCW, I started in radio when I was 15, then went to WCW at like 16. And so by the time I called in, I went to a year of college, majored in bong rips and partying and failed attempts <laughs> to uh, pick up women. And uh, basically, you know, I got Bob on the phone and Bob was like, you know, listen, you're, you're eight, 19, you can, 18, you can PA or intern. There's only things I can really offer you. And um, because Mike DeLuca, who was running the studio, was a college dropout, you know, yeah. turned intern, I said, well, I'm going to do that. Um, but more so, I will say for WCW to that, like at the time in the Time Warner portfolio, when I called in, WCW was a hot product and was doing well for Time Warner. Oh, yeah. It was, it, it was one of the more overachieving properties they had. It was kind of a downtime so for corporate so bob was aware of what i was doing or at least was impressed by that when we talked and i do think it helped me but honestly they were like the, the bob relationship and my the ground that i had laid there was 
you know, years ahead of me uh, uh, going uh, to WCW. And ultimately, well, WCW did help me. And as yeah. I've said many times in the years since, it, it was the best training for show business ever. Now, how did you get into WCW? And I'm sorry for uh, mixing up the Time Warner. Uh... I really, I resent this. I'm sorry. This interview is over. No, no, no. Of course <laughs> No, yeah, uh, no. How do I, I get into WCW? Yeah, because it, it, it's it's almost it, it's a weird jump to go from oh working for WCW, especially the height of its heyday because this is essentially in the mid nineties from nineteen ninety six to at least ninety nine two thousand or so, and then suddenly working for at least New York Line Cinema, going into that like phase of of WCW where it was at the height of the Monday Night Wars and the height of, you know, NWO, NWO Wolfpack, you know, NWO Japan, 2000, uh, what have you. And then NWO you have, Israel, we had everybody. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's like, so. NWO Denmark were hot. So how did you get into working for WCW at the time, especially since, uh, working for a major company like that would be uh like a big uh i, I want to say a, a huge opportunity yeah i mean it was a huge opportunity and it was the best but i always viewed it I, I had a plan i you know i always new line was always the destination since i was eight um and so for me you know i had started in radio in detroit i was the youngest i think talk host in the country and i had done the today show and the new york times and a bunch of crap um, and I was, wrestling was cold, um, but I was always, you know, I, I was a pretty well-rounded kid and I always liked, you know, I liked, I, I liked comics. I liked movies. I liked wrestling. I liked sports. I liked politics. I liked, you know, I was pretty worldly. Yeah. I liked music. Um, and so I, I was already a, a big fan of the business, uh, and I think, you know, because of the things that I loved that are all kind of, you know, they're like the Olympic rings. They all kind of intersect each other. There's, yeah. It's not the fact that you're wearing a shirt that has wrestling and horror, like speaks to the fact that yeah. these, these worlds all kind of, you know, um, and even now is what I would say I'm a lapsed fan today, looking at it from afar, it seems like it's moved even further in that direction from what I can tell. Um, yeah, no. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like a niche within a niche in its own way. Uh, but I, I was always a fan of it. And so at the time when it was cold, I was the only one in town that like when they would come that would promote it. And I had a radio show. And so I'd have like Jimmy Hart, and I think Sherry might've been on. And oh, so, nice. the first, so they, they knew me, Zane Breslov, who's really the, maybe the single most underrated major name in the history. The guy, the, the, Zane Breslov should be in every hall of fame known to mankind. Zane Breslov is, Outside of Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff, you know, as responsible for the boom periods in our lifetime, uh, he's no longer with with us, uh, uh, unfortunately. Um, it's been a long time. But Zane Breslov, um, really a master promoter, promoted WrestleMania three for Vince, uh, uh, and really was. And I've said this before, like outside of Hogan jumping to WCW. The biggest get prior to Hall and Nash coming was Zane Breslov because Zane Zane opened up arenas and markets for them that they just were not going to touch otherwise. Zane is a really important figure. Uh, Dave Meltzer knows this and is certainly will reference him and stuff. 
Um, and someone had mentioned on, on the on the on the Reddit uh, wrestling thing that like I think Bischoff puts him over, which does not surprise me, obviously. Um, but Zane took an interest in me uh, and saw that I maybe had something and started to advocate for me. And I ended up at the, the press conference for Halloween Havoc in like 94, 95 with Hogan and, and Flair and their retirement match, which is hilarious. Uh, and Muhammad Ali and Mr. T. And I actually got to take my, my dad because I, I couldn't drive. I was like 15. So my dad had to drive me and he's sitting there reading the paper, watching me interacting with Muhammad Ali and stuff, which was pretty cool. Um, and so that's when I first met Bischoff. And he was aware of me through through Zane. And then Zane would then connect me with Jimmy Hart and Jimmy would take my creative ideas and they'd come to town and my high school friends would be sitting in the front row and I'd be backstage with Jimmy talking creative as a high school student. So I, mean, I just, very fortunate really um, that those guys took an interest in me and saw something in me. And then eventually uh, after I wrapped the radio show and frankly had gone through a really sort of tough run of like, oh God, what do I want to do next? I've peaked at 16 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, flew my mother and I out because again they couldn't. I was underage. They couldn't fly me out by myself to Atlanta and offer me a job and and went from there. And and it um so to this day like I as I have a lot. I'm incredibly grateful to to Zane and to Eric and to Jimmy and to all of those people who took a chance on me because to, you know I was a 16 year old chubby kid from Detroit who could talk certainly and I I knew you know I knew what I was doing in the room but you know that's uh. Uh, particularly, you know, going into the period that you speak to, which is a pretty heady historical period for the business. Yeah. Pretty cool. And, and not something I take for granted. Never have. Of course. Uh, but yeah, going into that period, uh, what was like the writer's room like compared? It's like you hear stories now where it's like, oh, like Vince McMahon, tore, you know, tears up uh script for no yeah no 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 like, yeah no i and i wasn't really i was brought in it was weird i was hired originally because they were going to do they were going to do pay-per-view like uh streaming right uh which is where i spent the bulk of my time but also they were going to do for tnt a wcw branded kids game show like you remember double dare which used to be on nickelodeon oh, wow so it was in the zone of that, and I was going to host that. That was actually what I was originally brought in for. And in my first meeting, I said to Eric, because Eric's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be on creative. And he said, well, that's an eventual thing, but like, I got to start you somewhere and you'll get a feel for yeah. the business, da, da, da. <clears throat> and so they brought me in originally to do that. I end up doing play-by-play -play stuff with Mark Madden and having a great time doing that. And it was really, you know, I think people knew me as an Eric guy because I was his hire and Zane, that didn't hurt. And so I was treated great. But I think really once Hall and Nash were in and took a liking to me and once DDP was like, you know, this kid's on the ball, that was when, and so it's not, I'm not sitting in booking meetings with them, but I'm being trusted with, hey, what do you think of this? And with top guys. And so yeah. that becomes pretty heady. And for me, like it's weird like i have my memories of wcw particularly given like i would read the observer and the torch those were really the two things you had back then right and 
you'd hear about like in WWE, they'd be hazing, they'd shave this guy's eyebrow, this guy gotta, gotta go to wrestler's court and what yeah. this guy, uh, um, Mr. Perfect shit in somebody's bag or Sean Waltman shit in somebody's bag. I can't I don't remember who did it, but um, maybe, maybe Owen, I don't know, who knows. But um, I was never hazed. I was treated incredibly well. And I was treated like a confidant. So like whether it was Benoit trusting me to be like, how do I crack a character? How do I, it's what's holding me back? And he was very aware of that. Or, or really, I think though Nash and Hall being like this kid's, you know, got something and then throwing. So it was, it was more of a like, all right, we've marked you for a certain thing. Um, but most of it's through just like shooting the shit with the, for all, all this stuff you hear about that locker room and the politics, which don't get me wrong, if you were, like, it existed, but not where I was. Yeah. It didn't touch me. And so I, under, and I recognize that that was a special insulated position. But like, I, I just, um, you know, even I can remember like being in the back and like, no, they, they didn't care if I went and sat in the, you know, they had a couple meeting rooms or that Eric had his office space. He didn't go if the door was fucking shut or whatever, but like, I'm going into locker rooms, shooting the shit, hanging out. I'm going to catering and sitting with the you know. And so you were treated as one of the guys there in a way that like, and they were, and it was a passionate group of people. They all loved the business and they want to talk about the business. And as a creative in any form, that's invigorating as hell, you know? But it's not like the process back then it's not like today where you hear about like Vince has hired a bunch of like writers who don't understand wrestling. Like I went to a dinner, there was a show in Seattle when DDP first won the title, Seattle or Tacoma. I want to say Seattle. And we went and Nash was the booker and it was a good show. It was a, it was a really good show. And, and it was, and as, at a time when we were like, things were sort of, you know, not great uh, towards the end. And I remember going to dinner. I got invited by Nash to go to like his booking committee dinner after the show. And it was Nash, Kevin Sullivan, Mike Graham. <sighs> I'm missing somebody. And then Randy Savage and Gorgeous George. If you remember when he had Gorgeous George with him at the time. And, you know, we're sitting there talking about the business because that's what you did. Or a little bit of baseball because Sullivan was there. Uh and I don't even remember what the subject matter was, but something I said caught Savage's eye. And I didn't know Savage well. Like Savage, very friendly if I had to deal with, but didn't know him well. And Savage, I, it was a, one of the greatest compliments I'd ever gotten in any business, looked at me with a twinkle in his eye and he smiled and he put his finger at me and he went, he gets it. He <laughs> gets it. And I never forgot that. I still, and so like to, to get to be in those positions, even in an unofficial capacity, pretty fucking cool. Cause by that point I was already in LA at new yeah. line and sort of knew I was leaving and, and knew I was going to try to help the business at some point from the executive position if I could, but it just, um, an incredible experience, an incredible way to spend your teens, certainly, uh, especially in that time period. And, um, make no mistake, I, the reason they, they started losing was when I started phasing out. I, there's no question about <laughs> that. Un undoubtedly, that was it. That was that was the untold factor. I, I they should have had a chapter in the death of WCW book, the kiss of death. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
Which brings me to mind, uh, now, did you see any storylines during that time where it's like you really thought this couldn't possibly work because, you know, I, I, I'm literally just thinking of around the same time of the death of WCW, which was essentially the White Humber incident, where it's like, oh, the, someone nearly kills, uh, what was it? I think it's Randy Savage with the White Hummer. And then they have this whole long one year thing of who drove the White Hummer. And it's like, did you hear essentially, like, did you go into storylines where it says, this possibly might not work because of the way it's handled. I mean, I was basically like emeritus status at that point. I missed all the Vince Russo stuff. Um, although I, Vince has always been very nice whenever I've dealt with him. Um, I, I, by that point, like I, I remember going to a show in, in, actually was it LA or Detroit? I think it was LA actually. This is how good my memory is at this point. But uh, um where literally every guy in the WCW locker room was watching Monday Night Raw. <laughs> like, like, it was like a show going on. They're like, no, no, we're watching Raw. No, no, no. And so by that point, Austin and Raw, and it, it, it was over. Yeah. Um, and so, you, you know, in the same way that, like, when it was hot, you could throw out some stuff that ordinarily wouldn't get over. A rising tide's going to raise all, all ships. Uh, when you're cold or when the other when you're clearly at that point secondary probably it starts looking like hail mary hail mary hail mary hail mary uh attempt you know one after another and it starts to look a little desperate and i do think that like at the end that's kind of where things started to go for wcw which you know at the same time you look at the ratings it's a different tv world um and you look at the library like the library value alone for WCW like today would be worth it was it was criminally uh undervalued when it was like Vince robbed them uh and it shows you how important having the right executives there because some executives have like a distaste for the business uh or they're like oh I don't want this on my network it doesn't matter how successful you are you're gone yeah. um but that that library today would be worth uh, it, like hundreds of millions yeah I, I think probably at least a couple hundred I, I I think so. I don't think that's outrageous. I think that like content is king. Somebody would value it, particularly international. There's ways to leverage it. So I don't know. Like it's by that point though, I just think that they sort of knew the. And I, I once you got to the point was that was Eric and were Eric and Vince uh, and Vince Russo together at that point? I'm trying to remember because that like that was the last flicker. You had a week or two where people were kind of like, oh, okay, this what is this? And then once that fell apart, you were, I mean, the, the Bill Bush run, all of that stuff, just crazy. I remember Vince Russo getting poached was in between me wrapping up my internship at New Line and then starting as a floater for New Line. It was in that sweet spot right in between. I remember that because I remember reading about it in Variety. Hmm. And it was a big deal at the time. Bill Bush, that was like they thought that was going to be something. Hmm. But, you know, they were, as you know, because you watch it, they were two different audiences. Yeah. And the WCW audience, like, they're not coming back. No, I mean, you could tell even in the late 90s, early 2000s, that the the wrestling was still there. It's just that they just didn't have the drawing power as the WWF had the time. Well, WWF, WWE, what you want to call them, but. You know, it, characters are king, man. Characters, yeah. this is one thing when, about Vince. 
when, and this is the great thing about uh, wrestling at the time, which is that the WWE, you know, the Attitude Era, right? This, and this is reason why WCW essentially fizzled out because of the Attitude Era, because I think, well, th- I mean, this is pretty much like they, WCW was really relying on the older generation of, you know, wrestlers, you know, like the uh, the Hogan, Halls, Nas, Flares, all that stuff, and not really building up the ground up with new wrestlers, where it's like, oh, you have uh, like a multitude of wrestlers who are, you know, up and coming, promising wrestlers, and then and they're kind of like I wouldn't say being held down, but they are being held down because of either clout or control or just star power itself. But then you have, and then you just switch over to WWE at the time, and then you see, you know, The Rock, Austin, uh, you know, even though he was already like like me into a, a decade or so, the Undertaker at the time was even more popular than he was when he first came in, you know, and you just have, it's like more of the lightning strikes in a bottle for the WWF during the time compared to like say WCW, where it's like a lot of the stuff that was happening was because of maybe because of inf- I don't know if there was infighting between people. I don't know. It's like in WCW, oh, sure, there are tons of politics was all that, of course. Yeah, there was like infighting with WCW, and, and which is weird because you know as a, I'm you know I'm not like one of those diehard fans who knows all about what's happening in the back room and uh, the backstages and all that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm more of like a casual fan. And as a casual fan, you could tell it's like, and, and this is the same thing that's happening nowadays with AEW and WWE, where it's just like, you just see that there's a turn of the tide of just things changing around, especially just wrestling in general, where it's just like, you have all these amount of people just willing to jump ship or let their contract run out, whatever you want to say, how they, you know, jump ship. And then suddenly it's like a lot of people are more utilized when they're not being held down. And I'm pretty sure that was like the same thing in WCW where it's like, oh, you know, it's like, and and the weird thing is like in hindsight now, and I remember this clearly, is that you know how many more weeks do I have to watch? Uh, uh, what was it? The NWO just run rampant when there's like no hero to go out and you know you know when Sting coming out and you know you know do all. Well, this that was when, I mean think about it when it was at its best was when you had when DDP said yeah. no and you had Sting in the rafters and it's it's where. You know, it's it, it's an, it's another case where the Bret Hart situation probably could have been handled better because that oh, was yeah. a natural spot. Um, you know, there's all hindsight's twenty twenty, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that like just you cannot underrate the fact that if the management at your broadcast home changes and don't want you, it's sort of moot. What you know what I mean? Like like wrestling is it's that it's that weird thing now listen it's, the tv climate has changed today to wrestling's favor frankly um because i think that um I, like i think wrestling again i'm and i i look at it i mostly just follow it from reddit at this point i don't really i don't watch the shows um yeah. i i think it's 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 still pretty niche as i view it um it's i don't think the audience has grown as much as the fans on reddit seem to think it's more that the tv landscape has shrunk uh and so your niche 
has of which there's like I don't know what WWE is doing like two two and a half million people on 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 their Friday show I think something like that at the high yeah because it's, uh, it's on the Fox network and the Fox yeah. network is still a like, like two million something like that yeah. right I think the last time I saw it. so so you let's say there's two let's say there's three two and a half to three million fans in the country, let's say there's some people that don't watch WWE that are watching the other guys or whatever, that might be generally, because I think we both know that generally a lot of people are probably watching both. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, that is, what's happened is that TV has shrunk so much, and particularly the need for live DVR-proof sort of programming, yeah. that wrestling now has a level of outside influence that in the old TV world, these numbers would really, you know, it would be very, I think, a different sort of animal. So it is, a lot of it's the television landscape, a lot of it's who your exec, uh, and who the, you know, uh, where the networks are. And so it's, it's, but I do think it's interesting. I, like, I read on Reddit all the time, a lot of fans are like, oh, it's back and it's bigger than ever. And I'm like, I'm not, I feel like you have a fan base that's more hard, more willing to spend more money on it than yeah. ever. They'll travel, they'll spend money. But I don't necessarily know that it's, it doesn't feel more mainstream to me. I think, I, I think nowadays there is a, a problem. I mean, and looking at some of the ratings recently with AEW, uh, especially with them having seen... Well, they, they're, they're doing like, what, a million people? Yeah, like a million. Like, like their ratings have, have never been higher than because of, you know, people like... Okay, Trump. but that's a million people, right? Yeah. Which, well, by the way, I'm not knocking. It's great. And I, oh, yeah. I have a lot of friends that work there. I want them to succeed. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm but, simply saying, that, like... You know, that in this television climate is, particularly because I know their demo is their thing, is, you know, as, is, is, as it is for most, but yeah. like, that's their hallmark. Like, that's great, but I also think people should, you know, like, you got to recognize the, the context of it a little bit. And I just think, like I said, the, the thing that grows it is the passion of the hardcore base you know, back like with the Monday Night War being like, you got to see this. You got to see what's happening. This is the cool. And so that's where I think from what I can tell, like with CM Punk and Danielson and those guys, that's, you know, oh, you got to see this. You don't know who's popping up next. That's yeah. what you're hoping for. to Stoke that fire a little bit. My sense is, is that fans kind of think the fire is bigger than it really is is sort of the way I would look at it. But yeah. again, I'm looking at this secondhand through Reddit and Meltzer's uh, daily news stuff. And you're also looking at it as a former, uh, essentially a former talent of WWE, where it's like you have a mindset of like, you've seen this before, it's like you just want to see how it plays out again, because you know, you're probably going to see more people like dropping in, in terms of both companies, where it's like, oh, you know, it's like suddenly, and, and yeah, suddenly TV, TV is just totally different. You can't you can't yeah. compare TV in the Monday Night War era to today because simply people don't watch as much TV. And, and if they I, do watch it, they're consuming it. They might be clipping it on YouTube. They might be getting it on the app or whatever. Like it, which it, is what which is going which was my next point. Which is essentially TV now has gone more of the streaming uh, streaming service site where it's like people will watch more of Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, Hulu, stuff like that too. So if and with wrestling now, you know, if you have, uh, like, the NWA has a great thing where it's, like, you just pay, like, $5.99, no, not $5.99, like, $4.99 a month to watch their uh, TV show, Power, 
for you know for that month and doing so you not only get access to power but also like other episodes of the past thing and i okay, think okay but how let me ask you a question how do you get new people to sample it definitely through youtube or through social media so what do they have again i just i don't know so they i saw when lagana and dave marquez were there i watched an episode of it on youtube and i love that they did the studio oh, very kind of old school and fun but yeah. so if it's so are they putting at a certain point the old episodes go up free on youtube is that the idea yes uh uh what was it a few weeks ago they just uh they just did the best of season five of nwa power essentially okay. uh clip uh, a clip show of all the best matches and best i matches. saw it by the trevor murdoch won their title right i love yeah. that guy is a nice guy I, I almost used that guy that guy uh i was happy to see that i thought it was a cool thing that's how they did they at the chase which is great because i knew larry matt is sick a bit back in the day and i'm sure he probably would have loved to have seen that but like they i guess my question is like it almost feels to me when i look at the reddit as an example because that's really like i check that that's where i get most of my news uh i look at the reddit i look at Meltzer's news thing every day when he usually has it or every other day uh and then i'll listen on youtube to like jim Cornette or disco inferno and conan and that's mostly how i hear what's going on yeah and so i will say that like particularly from reddit i almost feel like there's almost too much product uh is sort of the sense that i i don't i don't know how you keep up i keep up i honestly keep up with just the casual watching of wrestling but also to twitter because i feel like twitter has a much more of a inkening of a breaking news rather than oh it's like you have to wait like say if there was a breaking news in wrestling you would have to like maybe wait wait like a week or two before it pops up in a uh, wrestling news uh, newsletter or something like that. Oh, I'm Although, sure. I'm sure Twitter's changed all of that tremendously. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah, where it's like, oh, uh, you know, there's rumors of John X like leaving, uh, you know, IEP or whatever it is, and then suddenly it's like IEP John X now leaving all that stuff, and now it's like, no, I'm not leaving. And it's like, why do? It's like, but but, but let me ask you a question. Like as a fan. Yeah. All right, so, do you watch WWE? You kind you of watch what was that? You kind of broke up there. Oh, do you watch any WWE? I watch WWE in a casual sense. Like, okay. I, do you watch any AEW? Again, in a casual sense. Okay, you're watching NWA. Yeah. Uh, do you watch uh, New Japan? Not that much because I don't know much about New Japan outside of. Uh, the Bullet Club and the fact that they're uh, feuding with other people. Have you un- unrelated? Have you ever watched any classic All Japan from the nineties? Do yourself a favor if you have not. <laughs> no. If uh, I do, do yourself a favor, had, go if, on YouTube. I'm yeah, sure if they're I there. Had, it is on YouTube. Okay, go start with Masawa versus Jumbo Saruta and do that story. Then do Masawa versus Stan Hansen. Then do Kenta Kobashi versus Masawa and you will be glad you did it um but my point is i guess more that like even as a casual fan like you're sampling multiple flavors of wrestling and that's not even like ring of honor is there yeah uh court bowers got his thing right you've got so like i just don't know how like there's so much wwe isn't wwe on like four nights a week three nights they're on three nights a week right wwe uh essentially five i believe you're because, yeah, 
Yeah, because you got Monday Night Raw, then you have uh, NXT. Friday SmackDown, and you have NXT. What am I missing? And then, uh, and then you're missing a uh, 205 Live if they still do that. Oh and then, Jesus! I okay. And then you have uh, NXT UK, and then you have Main Event. Oh, I okay. So there you go. So yeah. I don't understand. As a casual, as a casual fan, it's like, like AEW is on twice a week now, right? Uh, four uh, times. They're on four times a week. Yeah, they have and uh, they have dark. Oh, there you okay. Yeah, yeah, no, okay, but that's fair. Like, all right, so then how in the world, like, that's just so much content that, like, I just, I don't know, man. That's, I, I envy you. It's an embarrassment of riches in a lot of ways. Um, I envy fans today, but I don't envy fans today because this is too much. It's, it's, that's, it's like that episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes to hell and has to eat donut after donut after donut after donut. It's like the same thing in horror. It's like the, it's like I, I, for horror, I am a very major fan of horror, right? As probably the people could, could tell. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like from the but as a wrestling fan, I'm more of a casual fan because again, I wouldn't know all the stuff of like I wouldn't know what uh, what a lot of like the backstage inciting terms, all that stuff, you know, who's fighting, who's Frankly, not fighting. that's good. Honestly, that's yeah. refreshing at this point because fans, they know too much at this point. The magic is gone. Yeah. It's like, like, I understand who is a good heel and who isn't a good he- uh, face, all that stuff. So as long as I know, like, who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? Who am I supposed to cheer for? Am I supposed to uh, boo the good guy, even though they're doing, you know, stuff that doesn't feel right as a good guy? Because there have been moments in wrestling where the good guy is portrayed as the good guy, but they do moments where it's like they do things that are medically, you know, not necessarily like an anti-hero, but they do things that a villain would essentially do. And the villain would essentially be more cheered because, you know, it, it gets to a point where it's like, oh, the villain is actually is actually more popular because of their antics rather than the, the hero. So I mean, like, like any storytelling, it's supposed to take you on a ride. Yeah, and... Honestly, uh, the way I immerse myself is like what you just said before. I have, you know, I have Reddit, I have uh, Twitter, I have uh, essentially those two main things because I don't read the dirt. You know, I don't read like dirt sheets because if I read dirt sheets, then I'm like I'm reading stuff that I'm being spoiled with. But if I'm reading stuff that I see on Twitter and I'm seeing it through a more casual eye, it's like oh, it's like you know tonight, you know John X, you know debuts on tonight's. Uh, you know, big pay-per-view, and then it's like, if I had read that on, like, a, a you know, a wrestling le- or newsletter, but, like, I would have known that, like, maybe two weeks in advance, but I'd rather be more mindful about what's happening now compared to, say, in other words, I'd rather not be spoiled to stuff I have known already compared to now, where I want to be living in the moment and actually seeing something that's happening you know, I think for any company that creates content, that's awesome to hear. I think you're a dying breed in some ways in terms of the thank you. hardcore fan base because I think a spoiler culture is kind of now just a thing. Yeah, there is. That is what yeah. it is. I, um, I, don't know, I don't know that you can put that toothpaste back in the tube. Now, going off of WCW and kind of like still in the process of going, you know, trans- transitioning into horror, uh, I know I just talked to you about before before we just start recording, which is that essentially 
horror and wrestling do have like this very odd mixture of, you know, going hand in hand. One of my favorite wrestlers for the past, uh, was it several years, was Bray Wyatt's theme character because it was essentially a Mr. Rogers-like character that would not be possible if not for the, um, the today's way of wrestling uh, entertainment where it's like they actually build up a lot of these characters. And I love the fact that The Fiend was like more like a boogeyman type of character where it's like you could tell he was being betrayed more like a Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees type, even though he has no, you know, or in wrestling case, a more Undertaker type of thing where it's like now as both someone who works in it, who has essentially has two worlds where it's like, oh, I have the horror world and I worked in the wrestling world. Why is it that? there has been like moments where horror and wrestling have like a sense of coexisted. You know, I remember very vividly watching WCW back in the day and then Chucky happened to appear like on Monday Nitro. Yes, uh, which, was, which was ridiculous. Yeah. Although and, not as bad as Arliss. Arliss, Arliss is the single worst. Uh, that's worse than RoboCop. That was worse than Chucky. Pretending that the actor Robert Wool was a fictional character from his HBO <laughs> show was easily the worst of the bunch. Ridiculous. Uh, uh, but yeah. Hey, uh, I loved you in Bull Durham and Batman, Arliss. Like, please. Hey, enjoyed your work in Cobb. Like, blow it out your ass. What are we doing? But yeah, my question is, why is it that there has been a mixture of horror and, you know, horror-related stuff in wrestling for the past, yeah, like... I mean, there's, there's a, for, you know, there's a long history of... of horror-tinged characters in the business, even if just, um, I mean, Killer Kowalski, you know, much much more owners than Walter Kowalski. Yeah, it's, it's Ox Baker. Yeah. Uh, you go way back. I mean, there's just, there's a great history of it because it's, you know, A, it's white hat, black hat. It's as basic as yeah. it gets. And you can't get more black hat than Jason, Michael, Freddy. It's, you know, Bat Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, et cetera. Um, I also just think that frankly, you know, these subcultures of audiences, they kind of intersect. I think that there's an appeal to a, it's whatever that fascination is, there's a certain type of consumer, I think that crosses these, these spaces and it's not small, it's a pretty big base. And at some point there's probably a pretty good book to be written about oh, yeah. allergy behind it. Um, but I don't think, and it's weird, like we talk about, my, I look at the Reddit, uh, uh, which I, found, I feel like such an old man, but oh, the Twitter, like you know, looking at the Reddit, like squared circle thing, um, the fan base to me feels more like Comic-Con fan base than ever. Yeah. Um, and again, this is me removed from it, looking at it as an observer. Like it is, it's become a much more uh, like the, 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 when I talk about like the idea like that these little areas of geekdom are like the Olympic rings, they all kind of touch on each other. The rings have started to push together a little bit is how I kind of feel. And it's, and it's almost, man, I, I don't know what it is. And maybe it is the internet. Maybe it is that, you know, technology in some ways has separated us while connecting us. Yeah. But I do think that in a, you know, in a lot of ways, as we get less religious as a country and more secular, people's, whether it's their sports teams, their political teams, their wrestling 
uh, uh, promotions. They're horror franchises. People are kind of replacing religion with their pop cultural stuff. I don't know that it's necessarily healthy. I'm not a big fan of organized religion per se, which is ironic given I'm in business with the Vatican. But <laughs> I, I, you know, like I, uh, who have been great partners, but but like I, I do think in a weird way, it's like when you look at Marvel and DC fans today, they're no different than like watching Democrats and Republicans yelling at each oh, other. Yeah. WWE fans and AEW fans. It's pathetic. Like, guys, like, calm down. There's no need to snipe. Like, they, let's let everybody be successful. The, the more successful they are, the more the better it is for every single person in the business. So let's calm down. Let's bring the rhetoric down a little bit. But I do think that that's, like, it's weird. I, so I, but I think people take their pop culture now, like, at a level infinitely more seriously than it was ever than it's ever been taken in, in our lifetimes. I don't know that that could be disputed at this point. Just given no. spend spend an hour on Twitter when a you know when when one of these debates breaks out. And yeah. so I think in a weird way it's sharpened the focus for these audiences um, and it's made them more passionate and hardcore. Although, like I said, like I do think there are maybe some negative. Oh my my uh, uh, Alexa devices. I don't know why I triggered it somehow. Excuse me. Um, they're listening to us. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, there may be some negatives to it. I'm not, I, it's really weird. Like I've just noticed this, we're becoming a harsher society in general. And I do think it applies to pop culture in a way that's not, not necessarily healthy, but I will say that like, there's just, I think it's like, there's something about people that like larger than life characters. That, yeah, you know that unites these in the same way comic books larger than life characters horror movies larger than life characters pro wrestling larger than yeah. life yeah. characters and some elements of music larger than life characters it, it's i think it's that to a to a large level the only time i think that wrestling and horror really don't intermix is when they're trying because i just remembered because my friends and i were just talking about the movie see no evil with you now with starring kane and i've and i would just remembered essentially how the wwe had to build up a storyline that related to the fact of why kane was hearing this number this date may 19th and all this and making him go crazy when oh, fact, I actually remember that. I do vaguely yeah. remember that. And it was to promote yeah. the movie. Yeah, and instead of it being about, <laughs> the, instead of being about the movie, they made it into this whole thing where it's like, oh, it, this just happened to be a date where something that happened or something. I don't remember it being quite clearly, but it also happened to be something to the fact of this date also was co, you know, colliding with the fact that. Oh, his movie happened to be re released on you know, May 19th. I mean, stuff. are you suggesting that WWE is capable of doing hackneyed forms of promotion? I find that shocking, sir. I, I, no, I mean, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what it is. But I, there's a great history of it. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't think that's going away. I think that's, it's, there's a reason it works. Uh, now, have you actually, uh, and... Again, what we were just talking about, you know, wrestlers and wrestlers and horror. I do find that wrestlers, when they do pop up in horror movies, they are surprisingly very well compared to, you know, the, the, the background you would think they would be not. No, nah, wrestlers, wrestlers get one take. So it's that's I'm never that's why I've always when I was an executive, 
I tried to help push wrestlers for cast wherever I could. Yeah. Um, I am. I think if, if people were to ask John Cena, he would have no problem saying I was his earliest advocate as an executive in town. Uh, mm-hmm. Dan Bain, his agent, would certainly say that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm a very firm believer. Just again, like I had three years or so of prime training in the space. It was my show business training. I understand. Like my ex girlfriend. Uh, I lived with for years as we're still very close with co-parent our dog she was working at Blumhouse at the time and I used to say to her I'd be like she was in television for them and I'd be like you guys need to bring Paul Heyman in and find something for him to do yeah uh, whether he's Alfred Hitchcock hosting a game show for you whatever like he is and I used to have to sit her down to try to and I've known Paul for years I love Paul like it's not about being friends with somebody it's like no he's perfect for that space and yeah. you know it, it um there is just a skill set i frankly like listen i wasn't an on-camera performer for them other than hosting a, a terrible beauty pageant but i literally like put a mic in my hand and no script i learned enough from wrestling i, I feel quite confident in my ability to go out and talk and so you, you just can't help it. Like it's, I actually think it's almost more challenging. Like you have to be a genetically poor talker. Like I love Bobby, Eaton, the late, great Bobby, Eaton, God rest his soul, who was an incredible worker. And the first time I saw the Alabama jam, it blew my mind. But like Bobby Eaton couldn't talk. And it was half the fun of his shit with William Regal back in the day when they were the blue bloods. Uh, but like Bobby Eaton was around Stan Lane and Jim Cornette 24 how many hours a day for how many years you would assume those are two great talkers you would yeah. assume like osmosis that bobby eaton would have been like no uh, you know um benoit who i loved all right i knew chris well like he just it was what it was and so i i'm generally of the belief that like if you have the slightest knack for for gab spending time around wrestling will only make you better because you just i mean the thing I do not understand about WWE and the thing that I do think if AEW ends up pushing them at all, uh, that I hope you'll see happen is the overt scripting of promos, which just makes the show lame and more importantly stops your guys from getting over because I'm sorry, like you gotta get somebody over. They have to be themselves. And it's very hard to be yourself if you don't believe what you're saying. And I know Steve Austin. Okay. like steve austin like that's like steve austin believes because it's him it's him turned up to 11 all right that's i mean that's him uh sam sam jackson okay sam jackson is him turned up to 11 okay like and he's utterly confident about it and he knows exactly what he's fucking doing he knows what his audience wants and he knows how to give it to them and he's confident as hell in his ability to do so and steve's the same way so like it's it, by by overtly scripting and handcuffing these guys, you prevent them from getting over at that level. And I'm now, not necessarily sure they want. Uh, that does bring up a great question because uh, I didn't realize I didn't, it didn't pop up to my mind until you just mentioned it, promos. Uh, from a stand, wrestling standpoint, how are promos perceived? Is it the day of where they gave you like uh, like the same thing as like okay, here's your promo. We're in Chicago tonight. 
talk about the Chicago crowd, all that stuff, and then talk about your opponent? Or is it literally like a full script that you have to memorize until probably you're about to go on on stage? Because I've had I mean, done that previously. My, my understanding of uh, my understanding of WWE today is it's closer to the latter with some guys obviously having some leeway. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, that's obviously not shocking given sort of how they work. Yeah. But that, you know, I don't, I just don't see, particularly given the fact they try to hire people who don't have wrestling backgrounds, I don't see how that's a ticket to success for any of these performers. Um, the best versions of this traditionally, are, I mean, yes, like if Mick Foley knows he's got an epic thing, Mick's going to work through that ahead of time, as he should. But in general, most guys back in the day, particularly like, give me your bullet points. No, we got to go get over. You know, you got your little razzle, your things that work with the crowd. Okay. But also, you know, I, I did spend several years out here working for ESPN, hosting stuff for them. And I love I would go do radio with these guys out here and it's like playing jazz. Okay. It is, you have a live microphone, you're going out yeah. to them, you're in Los Angeles, you're in LA. So you're going out to millions of people. There's no net. It's a live mic. Bring your instrument. The other guy's got his instrument and like, let's go see how it's, let's go play. Which is and one of the that like, That's what's missing. Yeah. Which no, is that's, 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 that's the thing. That's the magic. What that, which is one of the funnest things to do as an actor, because I have an acting background, and one of the funnest things to do is to try not go to essentially keep on script. But if we feel like the script is not moving well, we could try and like divert into a, doing at least a little improv moment to keep it from failing. Because you know, you know, it could be like just two people on stage, and you know, it's not getting across, and then you know, suddenly one of you know my stage partner could do something that will try and keep it, you know, from not failing and i feel like that's the and that's the basis of what a promo should be is, is essentially keeping the the notion of why are we talking in the ring you know what's our go you know what's the you know, what's the five w you know the you know what's the who the what the where all that stuff what's our uh, motivation and from doing so if something is going a little line you know just you know be off the cuff and be yourself and then essentially allowing yourself to not only get you over as a talent, but also get you over as a speaker in the ring. Because if you allow yourself to speak, you speak freely as opposed to just having someone right next to you and speak, you know, your mind, they won't know. It's like, Oh, you know, why wouldn't you, why, you know, that that's the great thing about Paul Heyman is that some of the people that he has managed in the past are actually great talkers. Is this that they, they, they just don't talk, you know, normally, like if, when you hear Brock Lesnar talk, he talks rather, you know, adequately, you know, Roman Reigns, the same thing. It's like, but when you have someone next to you, like a Paul Heyman type who speaks for you, and then you don't get like maybe a two second word in, then it's just like, you know, why do you bother not speaking at all as a wrestler when the whole point of a, a promo between you and the other wrestler has to be one, we have to sell, uh, we have to, it's like the same thing in in horror where it's like oh the final girl and the slasher or or the killer are having their final uh, final uh, confrontation and it's basically all the stuff 
that the final girl had a final girl had to endure for the past like 90 minutes or so is now wrapped up into one emotional ball so she could uh, you know lash out on the killer rather so this is like the moment where the killer can appear to be more human even though during the entire film or tv show he has appeared to be like oh almost like a non you know non unstoppable killer but i i i digress <laughs> Yeah, but, I just know that if I had my druthers, I'd rather have a roster full of people that can talk than people that are five-star in-ring people, personally. Yeah. Uh, speaking of horror, so bef- how now you mentioned that you had a way into working for New Line, and then once you managed to work for New Line, what was like the, the process to being into working essentially in the building that Freddie built? Like, and this is during a time right before New Line Cinema. I, well, I'm not sure if this was during the time when New Line Cinema rose up because of the Lord of the Rings or right as it uh, was about to release the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so basically, and also really quickly, is it cool? Are we able to wrap around two o'clock my time? And if I'm, ha- I'm happy to pick it back up at some point after, just because I got my dog is going to, I got to go out at some point because I screwed up the scheduling. Oh, no, no, uh, two o'clock your time. That's like... Uh... So another like 35 minutes and then I'm happy to re-record oh, yeah. a second half or something at some point. I just, my dog, I'd saw, normally I'd have him out now. I was going to do it all before. I, it's my fault because I screwed up the entire Oh, no, no, no. That's it. That's perfectly fine. Cool. No, no worries. I'm, again, I'm happy to do a follow-up thing or whatever. But so anyway, um, no, so I had a, my, my, very, I arrived, it's great. I arrived in LA. I drove, I drove cross country with my dad, arrived. Um, and, and let me say like, could never have asked for better parents from the yeah. time I started my career as a 15 year old to WCW to new line on down. I'm very grateful. They're still with us today. Uh, you could not ask for more supportive, uh, cooler, just like, you know, uh, my parents, my 18th birthday uh, was the night of Starcade in Nashville. So my parents, they're like, fuck it. We're going to fly down to Nashville. We'll go to the show, take you out for your birthday. And they're, so they come backstage. They're meeting everybody. Mean Gene hits on my mom, which is awesome. I love Gene. He's the guy, I love Gene. So he's the one guy where I'm like, you know what? It was, it was Gene. I'm okay with him. I loved him so much. Loved him, loved him, loved him. Everybody loved Gene. Uh, he, let me imagine how cool you imagine gene okerlund to be and then multiply it by about a hundred he was the greatest of all time i loved him so much so anyway uh if my mom had to leave my dad for somebody gene i would have been okay with uh and so you know and they went and they watched the show and it was roddy piper and hogan i think in the main event uh and then we went had dinner at hooters in that there's the only thing open after the show so, you know, I've lived a lot of dreams. And I'm very grateful to the fact that, you know, a lot of it takes, some, you know, having parents that support your dreams is big. But so anyway, yeah. I drive out cross country with my dad, arrive in LA on my 20th birthday and start as an intern at New Line like two weeks later. I interned six months, 40 hours a week for free. I lived on um, baked potatoes, uh, cantaloupe and blueberry muffins. It was ridiculous. And I'd saved money from WCW. Uh, and... And basically, my first, my first job, my first day as an intern was to find Robert Elswit's deal memo on Magnolia, the, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. My second job 
was to start stacking and organizing uh, production materials from Lord of the Rings, which at the really? time was called Jamboree. Jamboree was the internal, you know, security title. Yeah, because you don't uh, want people to know. They just like... started shooting. They had started, they had started shooting maybe two months earlier or something like that, two, three months earlier. Uh, and so, like, I would go... And I'm separating like, okay, the Uruk High armor over here. This is Rohan armor. This is Gondor armor. This is, and the coolest thing in it was Peter Jackson had done a bunch of face model tests for Gollum for them to start building the model based on his own face. So it's Peter Jackson doing all the Gollum faces that he oh, wants wow. them to start mocking up that will eventually be used for Andy Serkis's motion capture. Um, so I was there very early on in the process and got to, it was it really an incredible thing to be a part of. And, and the year of return of the King was the year I was officially promoted and made and had Freddy versus Jason. And, and, uh, it was just, a, you know, I think we all at the time understood this is star Wars. You're never living anything like this again. Yeah. Uh, and you, for any one of us that was at new line for that ride, it's something that's very special uh it's something that i think we all feel very grateful to have been around the entire lord of the rings group of talent became part of the family because they were there for three years and you literally had you had okay you had the years of production so ordesky's down there in new zealand you know for years then you've got the pre-release build where you know once we had the the can reel go out which was like a 20 25 minute can reel built around meeting the hot, the little intro at the beginning, meeting the hobbits, and then the Minds of Moria sequence. We knew, we were like, oh my God, because it killed and it can. Then they brought it back and screamed it for the employees. Employees went nuts. You knew, you knew it was going to work. And uh, then you had release and then the award season stuff for all three movies. So those actors, they were, Peter, they were here all the time. They would, Ian McKellen, would take the gay new line like crew he would take them clubbing I, like it was crazy i'm still friends with dominic monaghan i talk to him all the time um it was just a a really i think one of the ladies had a thing with vigo like it was just a really crazy new line particularly at that time you've got to remember that like we had a rock and roll sort of wreck i took a trip with my mom to japan after my freshman year, right, the, right between college and New Line. And there was an article that came out and it was, excuse me, while I was in Japan, um, by Premier Magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, but Premier, if you remember at the time, was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And pretty well regarded. And it was about New Line's party culture. And it was very controversial, probably pretty accurate. Um, and we said, we're never advertising in Premiere ever again. Da, da, da. But like, I remember before I had joined New Line reading that article, and I was very aware of this. It just, it, listen, it's a company that would allow someone like me to go from intern to executive within a couple, I mean, I was an exec, I was an intern at 20 and exec at 24, a VP at 26, 27. Like that was New Line. So yeah. Line, that's that's about Bob Shea and Michael Lynn, and Michael's no longer with us. You know, Bob obviously horror fans know, and that they'll talk yeah. about. A lot. Michael Lynn deserves a hell of a lot of credit. Um, Michael Lynn, I, I had the great pleasure of when I wrapped my internship, I became a floater for them, 
And as a floater, I basically became the go-to guy for the entire executive committee. So for the six months or whatever it was, eight months before I became, went into development full-time, that was basically the, they, the plan was always, oh, we're going to transition you. This was the steps. And yeah. so in that period, I basically covered the desks of, because I was never an assistant. It was really weird. I got to float and then went right to sort of a junior exec. Uh, department, departmental uh, a, um, development sort of coordinator and then exec. And basically um, I would co- I would cover Bob Shea's desk and work one-on-one with him. Michael Lynn, Rolf Mitwig, the head of international, David Tuckerman, the head of distribution, head of marketing, head of home. I learned every division of that company. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, D- WCW was my undergraduate degree, New Line, that was grad school. And it, it, and so to do that, have that access, be trusted by those guys, and then also to be there during Lord of the Rings as that, as that's going on. And it's every year. All right. Like, I, I don't give a shit about it. The Oscars were my bar mitzvah theme. I couldn't give less of a shit about them. Like if I have a friend, uh, um, I had a friend who won for spotlight. I'm happy for her. If Guillermo, I love Guillermo. I'm happy for him. But like, otherwise I just generally don't give a shit. Uh, it's, it's, nasty and political and horrifying to be around but like you know we had every year a lord of the rings that shit going on and like those parties were fun i'm not going to pretend oh, yeah. those parties were fun i honestly Paris remember, Hilton fell in the pool at bob's house i honestly remember when and, and this is when like the lord of the rings has always been a special part of my uh my history because that was my uh teen like movie growing up because i was like i was like so fascinated because it's how it's and yeah, it's star. It's star. It, what Star Wars was for me, Lord of the Rings is for that next generation. Yeah, for that millennial generation. Yeah. Well, well, millennial. I don't really like using the term millennial because I don't feel like I am a millennial because I was born in '86. I, I feel like I'm like. Uh, I think technically, aren't you a millennial then? In that case, I think. Yeah, but but then again, I feel like I. I, feel- I, I wouldn't want the tag either. You got- yeah, I'm like, I'm like I'm in a very weird niche, all that stuff in terms of the that a uh, generation gap. But when I was growing up with New Line Cinema, I always thought it was like, oh, it was like what you just said before. It's the rock star, uh, the rock star uh, film company. Where it's like yeah, we, were, we were rock and roll. We were cool. Yeah, yeah. We, and it's we, like we, I, even I if we failed, we made interesting shit. Yeah, I remember it was like more horror movies than there were, you know, like action movies because that's how I always associated New Line Cinema, not because of the Freddy Krueger stuff, but it was more horror-related themed uh, uh, movies released by New Line Cinema or at least distributed by New Line Cinema. And then once Lord of the Rings, it's like that's when we that's when I kind of knew like, oh, New Line Cinema is like a legitimate like uh, legitimate house now because they helmed released uh, a trilogy of movies that was uh, that made like a billion dollars in the box office or I, I don't remember the actual, actual number but yeah it's like the moment Lord of the Rings hit the first movie and then the second movie and then the third movie it's like it always holds a special place because I knew it was like New Line Cinema is like that was like the pinnacle of peak New Line Cinema but the, the but then I also remember growing up with New Line Cinema with films like The Mask and seeing how that new line cinema compared to where it's like, oh, once it's past like new line, it's like 
It has like no, it was it was it was the it was the peak, but it was also the beginning of the end. I think, and I think people recognize that. Oh, also, also, frankly, like like once you, I, one of the reasons I'm not a big believer in of the award stuff is like I'd always I I'd, I'd rather chase box office than prestige. That is me. Yeah. Um, I think chasing prestige is kind of a fool's errand, and the problem is after you go through being fed it every year and you know it's it's uh you're the bell of the ball you get addicted to that and so you start trying you start making it's uh, the example i always used to use was like rob reiner who's made like spinal tap and the show yeah. thing he's making some good stuff then he goes and he makes a few good men which is really good but it gets a bunch of nominations and now suddenly he's like whoa wait a minute i'm a film i'm an art i'm an auteur and that's how you get ghosts of mississippi Okay, where it's just like the most contrived Oscar grab stuff of all time. And so I just um, I think in a lot of ways, some of the wrong lessons were probably taken from it. Yeah, Uh, obviously, Bob and Michael's relationship with and again, this is can't stress this enough. This is the same thing with the wrestling thing. The executive structure matters. And when you're in a corporate situation like this, if you don't get along with the people at the top, it doesn't matter. You had this. 40 year history of Jeff Bukas it's like you know what I think it's time to make a change there was not much that Bob and Michael could do now answer me this because of Lord of the Rings and the success it got was that the the reason why Freddy versus Jason was put into production because Freddy versus no, Jason no 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 not at all no Freddy versus Jason was a development for 10 years well yeah I know that but what caused because the Slash of the Titans, the, the, which covers the, the production of Freddy vs. Jason from the first script to the Shannon and Swift uh, uh, draft and the essential thing, it's a great book to read because you got to read all these different drafts and all these different ideas and a lot of these other ideas. Because there's an idea where it's like, oh, Jason Voorhees goes on trial. That's a great set up to an, uh, for a movie for Friday 13 movies is essentially the trial of Jason Warhees you know, or you know, they could you could try and do that with Freddy Krueger but you know in canon that already happened and Freddy Krueger you know already got released because of you know someone didn't file the paperwork but that's another story but <laughs> how did now did this is but yeah did the success of Lord of the Rings really do help no inter- totally totally unrelated had zero impact uh, to be very frank with you they all they wanted to make the movie uh this, it was a priority movie to make uh when stokely was first hired it was given to her as her top priority the entire reason i got promoted and brought onto it was because i knew my shit on like like they were yeah. like okay it's the priority the kid knows what he's doing uh i mean i literally was brought into a staff meeting and told i was an executive like literally out of nowhere hey we need you in here and then you're an exec i was like oh, oh. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, in front of everybody, it was cool. Um, and so, no, they all honestly, it was about script they liked, filmmaker they liked, and most importantly, budget number they liked. And once yeah. they hit 30, 35, whatever it was, then yeah, that was so like it was those that combination. I think once Damien and Mark had come on, it was getting closer and closer and closer script wise anyway. Uh, and then it became about you got to hit that right the proper number for it to make sense on the PL, which is like the great you know, the people know the PL is one of the great uh unheralded factors in, in movies. 
Uh, and I'm sorry, what was that? What is the PL? PL is like your profit and loss, but basically your oh, business okay. development department will go on. They have now back then, you know, and this again just speaks to how much things have changed. You had DVD and DVD and cable, like real money in those, particularly DVD. So like uh, um like on Snakes on a Plane, as an example, our DVD, if I remember correctly, because right before I left for Fox, they showed us some comps and it had done, it had, the, the DVD comp for Snakes was Blade 2, which was a very successful DVD for us. Mm. And so that was like, so I remember because over Blade 2 had done better at the box office, but our overperformance on DVD was the comp. So I just, I just um, back then you made real money from that. It could, it could take a movie into the black. And so in that point, it was really about, you'd get a sheet, you would say Freddy versus Jason, budget number, da, da, da. And then it was like a, like a spreadsheet with like four colors, the low, medium, high, and high, high in terms of box office. Here's, and then the projections, because you would have negotiated out like, here's our airline and hotel deals. Here's all that stuff that back in the day, I still have it, but like the deals are just totally different now. Um, and you would basically know that, okay, if this movie does 10 million, we lose X. If it does 20, we break even. If we does 60, we make whatever the hell. Yeah. And so that process and, and working the PL, working the sheet, that was half of the, the game. That's how you got your movies made. People yeah. are, oh, oh yeah, that, that's, that, that's very important. Like it's, and it's, it's uh, there's not a single studio that doesn't do some variation of it. Now, having worked, did you have a favorite draft or favorite story from the Frey registration uh, timeline of the script ideas? Because yeah, I mean, I so I read the this is I read the first draft of the script I, when I was still in high school. That's how long this was in development, and I bought it at the Motor City Comic Con in, in Novi, Michigan. There was a, and I I don't know if they still exist. There was a place called Pix Poster Seller in Boston. And they would go to all the conventions and they would sell one sheets and like awesome, like international. I had an Italian army of darkness, one sheet in my first place in LA. It was awesome. Um, Ooh, wow. And they would sell like scripts that they had somehow had people here that they were paying off and they would, so like you would go pay $10 a script or it was crazy. Uh, and I would buy a bunch of scripts. That's how I learned how to read scripts as a kid. And they would, they would always be at Motor City Comic Con um and a lot of the major cons i'm sure there are people that around my age that'll hear this that will remember them yeah. uh and they have the peter briggs draft so i bought it and i read it that night my dad and i went to go have dinner with my brother in ann arbor because he was in school at michigan at the time and i read it in the car on the way there and back <laughs> and uh and just you know Never in a million years. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to miss my winning. Know, I never thought at that point, like, you, okay, well, this movie's getting made. How am I going to get a chance to ever win? No, who would have thought it would take like 10 years and then I would, I'd get to work on it. But I, that just, I have very fond memories of reading that. And and, uh, uh, and in fact, when we did Freddie Jason Ash, uh, in the second one, I do a little nod. The ending of that is a nod to the ending of that draft, which is my little sort of, you know, thank yeah. you that, that started it. And, you know, like they, I, the, the biggest thing that did me a favor in terms of eventually getting to work on it, but that also slowed it was Scream. Because Scream yeah. came out yeah. and you had about four years of scripts that were entirely reactionary to Scream. 
Yeah. Thank the, God it didn't get made because it would have been a disaster. I forgot. Uh, um, you had a lot actually, of them. You had, you had several drafts of writers that were scream adjacent. Yeah, the, the, the book actually does put out like a lot of this very meta horror thing or meta horror. There's script. one where they're referring to like Michael and all, all sorts of shit. Yeah, there, there was a legitimate script where it had them where Freddy was, it was sort of like a keen to a new nightmare where it's like, oh, Freddy is actually in the real world, but Freddy's also a fictional character along with Jason. Right. Or they have like, there was a cult worshiping, or there was a Dominic Necros and he'll be our new Freddy. And like, you know, I'm a very big believer, both in terms of like film development, in terms of wrestling booking, uh, keep it simple, stupid. Something that was taught to me in like sixth grade. Uh, and if the movie is called Freddy versus Jason, and like, let's be honest, audience, they're not, they're not, they're not coming for my dinner with Andre. No. Okay. This is they're not coming here for a Jim Jarmish movie. They they want to watch Freddy and Jason fuck some shit up and then fuck each other up. That yeah. and so I do think. Again, we talk about the importance of executives with these things that like for a long time you have like with execs with wrestling on their on their program and they oh why do I have to air this? Da, da, da. But there were executives who worked in horror that were like, oh, why do I have to hate this stuff? And I'm gonna I gotta find a way to like elevate it or whatever. And disdain for the audience in anything, I think it's a bad idea, but the audience can tell. And Horror fans, and this is where we see that that intersection with wrestling fans and the comic fans again. Like they can especially tell. Oh yeah. Uh, and you know, like, like I'll say this for Blum. I know Jason a little bit. Like Jason's not a horror fan, but he's hired people underneath him. Like Ryan Turek's a horror fan, and he understands that. Like, like he's smart enough to go like, all right, I'm gonna empower people underneath me who love this stuff and you know let them do their thing um audiences just they know they know when you're when you're just like sneering at them and so i i think that's like a lot of the weinstein horror stuff doesn't resonate is like they're just they don't give a fuck like yeah. i can promise you with bob like sometimes misplaced but bob cared bob legitimately cared hmm. um you know they, particularly when it came to Freddie because he understood that like I'm all this exists because of this guy. It's just, you know it's got to be handled with care. Yeah. And so it, it um you know I think to Damien and Mark's credit like they understand and I I always associate like Cale Boyder who's a great exec he's at Legendary now who was at New Line I think he and Brian Hickel were their earliest advocates and they were originally hired under Deluca. Yeah. Uh, and DeLuca was the first one who gave me entree to read scripts and give notes on the project. I yeah. quartered him at the Christmas party and he was like, I'd love for you to do it. Thank you. And that was what really got me in. And then when Mike left and Toby came in and then brought Stokely, like the momentum, it they were happy enough with the script that then it really became about hitting the budget. You get that, you know, and get it tight. And those guys did a great job. Uh, and you finally got to that sort of sweet spot where they could go and make it. Uh, and then you were sort of off and running. And like I said, like I'm sitting there, sitting back here while they're in Vancouver and I'm doing notes on dailies and shit. And then one day I get called into a staff meeting and I'm like, hey, you're an exec. So I 
was my something was good in my notes. I know who knew. That's now, uh, in, in terms of pretty much Jason, there there was a few. I, I forgot how many of the stories. I forgot how many of the script ideas were there, but it had essentially, oh, Freddie molested Jason as a child. Do you think if they had added that factor into the uh, into the film where it says, oh, they are leaning towards the notion of Freddie having molested kids, would that have impacted the film more or was it just because Freddie Krueger is a being a pure evil you don't have to say what he does you know he is a guy who takes sadistic pleasure into whatever he wants to do but if they had added that like notion of him molesting jason as a kid either as another camper or as another uh or janitor there what have you there would that have ruined the the mystique of not only jason as a character but freddie as a character I mean, I here's my thing. Like, I'm a believer there are certain times you show, don't tell, right? I hate exposition yeah. dumps. Particularly because, again, like, audiences at this point, they I've just watched something. What did I just watch? Oh, uh, Godzilla versus Kong, ironically enough. I just watched <laughs> it. Uh, and it's a great movie, by the way. In the opening scene of the movie where they're in the jungle, and there's like a prelude thing, and then they're in the jungle. And is it Rebecca Hall, I think, is the woman? Yeah. I, her first line in the movie is the great... I laughed my ass off because it was such an exposition. And it was her first line in the movie. I was dying. I was howling. Um, I hate that. It drives me up a wall. Uh, and I think that, like, in, in the opening intro of Freddy versus Jason, part of which I wrote, which I'm very proud of, uh, which was a late ad. Uh, the only real illusion, if my memory serves, and granted, I haven't watched it in a minute, uh, is he licks the back of like yeah. a photo and it's a little creepy. That's enough. Yeah, that's enough. Right? That you that's enough. enough. It's creepier for you to imagine what the fuck he's thinking than for you to tell me specifically. Oh, yeah. You know, when he was a counselor at Camp Crystal Lake, he once, yeah. you know, at a a hairbrush incident with Jason. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know what it adds. I also think that like, listen, like if I didn't see the remake, in the remake, is he? Yeah, that's to- another thing I wanted to bring up. Which was sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, no, I never, I never saw it. Yeah, and in the remake, that's what they lean into is that oh, yeah, first, okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, they 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 give you the old switcheroo of it says. What if Freddy actually was innocent because, you know, these are kids just making kids stories. And then, oh, no, it's actually true. Freddy did, you know, uh, touch these kids in a very you know, naughty way. Oh, so like, it's, it is very overt. Okay, I didn't yeah, know. very overt. They, they do tell, and, uh, and his plan is essentially to, is essentially at the end of the movie is to rape Nancy when she is in a coma or something like that, or a dream, like she has essentially kept herself so awake that her mind just essentially just gets into that micro nap thing. 